BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Bandrowski Show. As I speak, it is, wow, Friday, February 9th. Damn, time keeps on ticking. Uh, and uh, <laughs> this story, man, I've been, this story, I, I just don't even, I always start these bonus interviews with uh, headlines. Let me get that out of the way. Uh, so the headline uh, in the paper today, I'm just going to take the Washington Post's special counsel report paints scathing picture of Biden's memory. They put two reporters on this thing. <laughs> two reporters had to handle this story. I could have told you he had issues without two reporters. All right. Uh, and then it's, uh, this is from uh, special counsel Robert uh, Hur. Th- th- there's so many dimensions uh, to this particular quote unquote uh, breaking news uh and i'm i'm gonna love to hear what my distinguished guest has to say about but i'm gonna i'm gonna start with mine uh my main takeaway uh so if you want to see an illustration of how two (laughs) two political parties play the game of politics this is like exhibit a i'll give you an example donald john trump remember him the president of the united states had this bizarre like kleptomania going on where he was just stealing documents that were he should not have been stealing. He should not have been taking with him. He took pounds and pounds of documents, classified documents from the government. Once he left the White House, kicking and screaming, by the way, after a failed coup, and he hoarded them, really twisted, weird, bizarre uh, behavior. And when the feds came pleading uh, do you know where this is? He said, no, I don't know where this is. When they took it a step further uh, and they said, no, you have it. Please return it. He goes, no, I'm not going to return it. Then they sent in the FBI and they took it and they put out these pictures that show mounds and mounds of documents. And then all lo and behold, it turns out. Oh, so, of course, he's been indicted and he's facing uh, a trial, one of many. Uh, and then it turns out, lo and behold, that Joe Biden, when he was vice president, got some took some documents and he discovered it in his garage. I think it was in his garage. 
So to play fair, the Democrats set up a special counsel, even though we could pretty much determine that at best, at worst, it was an oversight on Biden's part. He was not intentionally hoarding documents for some bizarre, twisted reason. And he certainly wasn't keeping hold of them when the feds came knocking for them, which is the essence of what Donald Trump is charged with. But to be fair, the Dems, they get a special counsel. He does an investigation. And, of course, he finds nothing wrong with what Biden did. But, you know, he just got to get that punch in. Because Biden played dumb, man, in the in, in, in the interview. We'll get into this uh, with the distinguished kid. Biden clearly played dumb. I don't know what. I, you know? And uh, he couldn't remember details. Probably because he didn't want to. He was setting up a defense uh, in case he was prosecuted. So uh, the special uh, investigator, the special counsel, uh, releases a statement that said... Uh, Biden uh, has memory issues, like he's an old doddering fool who can't remember. What day is it? Like me trying to figure out what the date is every day I do these interviews. They play two by two sets of rules, ladies and gentlemen. The the, The Republicans give a middle finger to the rules and dare the feds to prosecute. At least Donald Trump does. Uh, And then raises holy hell when they do. And the Democrats abide by these rules. And then, of course, they're the ones who get snared in the embarrassing uh, revelations. Politics uh, in the United States in the year 2024. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to bring my distinguished guest who is patiently listening to my rant uh, and now will offer his own thoughts on this. Take it away, distinguished guest. First, introduce yourself. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. I'm David Ferris, Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University, author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, uh, columnist at Slate Newsweek. Um, <clears throat> yeah, not a great day for the president yesterday, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> not the news cycle you wanted. Um, just nothing good about this situation whatsoever. I mean, yeah, I mean, as you know, the rule in American politics is that... Um, uh, Democrats get investigated by Republicans and Republicans get investigated by Republicans. So the rule is just that the, the only people allowed to do re- investigations are Republicans. And so here is, you know, here's the fruit of that like unilateral capitulation that we've been engaging in for, for better part of 30 years now. Um, and, uh, you know, th- there's multiple things that can be true at the same time about this, Ben. Like one, this was an outrageous document, right? That like, saw the special prosecutor making all kinds of judgments about Biden's memory that he's like not qualified to make and speculations that he's like no business making. When if you if you just drill down into the finer print of the document, it's like we don't have anything to charge him with because <laughs> like we wouldn't be able to, to prove intentionality in the keeping of these documents. OK, um, and it's like, oh, it was bad. You know, there were documents in a, a Zappos bag and this and that. It's like it doesn't matter. Right. Because he didn't mean to. And no one would ever convict him for this. Right? Like that's that's clear that if you if you just if you read the document in between all of the like arid speculating about Biden's age and his memory, the takeaway is that the, the special prosecutor came to the obvious conclusion that there was no way that he could successfully prosecute the case, okay? Because Joe Biden didn't take these documents intentionally, as you mentioned, okay? 
That's all true, right? Like appointing this guy was a mistake because Merrick Garland is like just like just the upside down gift that keeps on giving to us, right? Like the failed Supreme Court candidate who didn't even fight for it in 2016, which is like, oh, well, they don't want me. Well, okay, I'll just bye, I'll go away. And then gets appointed attorney general as like some sort of like dumb revenge plot against Republicans. And it's like, haha, joke's on us, you know, because he spent two years not um, not investigating Trump for January 6th, meaning like that trial might not even happen before the election. Um, and he like appointed a special prosecutor for Biden and like one fiftieth of the time it took him to do it for Trump. So what a mess. Like Garland is just like an absolute nightmare as attorney general. Right. Um, but you know, that's a different story for a different day. The reality is this report was incredibly damaging politically, you know, regardless of whether the special prosecutor himself was uh special counsel was like off the rails, um, that's what got reported, right? Like it was so bad that Joe, Joe Biden felt the need to go have a press conference last night um, during which he was like super duper angry. And, um, you know, it didn't, I guess like the, if you could say, okay, what did that press conference accomplish? I do think it's like, it's not like he doesn't know what time it is or anything. You know what I mean? He's not, like, he can still speak in complete sentences and defend himself. And uh, everybody was talking about mixing up Egypt and Mexico, but like, I mean, come on, man. I mean, p- play the next hour of our radio show. Like one of us is going to make a mistake like that. It's just always, it's just the nature of speaking in public. You, you accidentally get things wrong. Um, Trump does it all the time, right? Without headlines. Um, but um, in the context of a, a news cycle in which it's like, we keep getting these polls with Biden losing the election to Donald Trump, you have voters uh, you know, high, high percentages of voters expressing skepticism about his age and his ability to do the job. And then you get this, like this gut punch of a, of a report that called him like a well-meaning elderly man. Who's like with difficulty recalling things, like said, he didn't know when his son died. Couldn't remember when he was vice president. Couldn't remember anything about discussions about Afghanistan when he was vice president. Again, what does that have to do with these? What well, does that have to do with anything? I have no idea. Like, why are you asking him about Afghanistan in 2010, my dude? Like, what? Like, why? Why are you doing this? Um, so it's like the special counsel was just probing where he had no business probing. But reality is, like, he didn't need anybody's permission to to issue this report. He could say whatever he wanted, um, and he happened to just like deal this like really low political blow to Joe Biden that I think has only increased the pace of questions about what are we doing here? You know, it's like, you can regard this whole episode as deeply unfair and, and like kind of ginned up and uh, special counsel, like going far out of his purview to, to do a, a political hit job. It, it doesn't change the fact that a lot of Democrats, including you and I are sitting here wondering why in God's name, Joe Biden is running for a second term and why no one challenged him. Sorry, Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson. Why no one credible? Why no one credible took him on? I mean, you read the reports, and it's like, you know, the Biden people are keeping score and keeping tabs, um, making sure all the twenty twenty eight contenders are are being good little boys and girls and um, being good surrogates for the campaign and and not doing anything that would indicate they they were going to challenge the president. And it's like this is a. I'm sorry, this is like a total party wide elite failure. Um, to do the Biden administration's bidding here by clearing the field, um, failing to, to, to believe the polls that have been screaming the same thing over and over again for the better part of two years. One, he's in trouble against the worst candidate on earth, Donald Trump. Two, 
voters think he's too old for it. No, you can blame the Times. You can blame the Washington Post. You can blame Robert Hur. You can blame whoever you want for the, you know, for the perception that he's too old for the job. The reality is he sounds old. Okay? He doesn't sound like he's doesn't, you know, he, he's like lost in a park at midnight or anything, but he sounds old. He looks old. His schedule is indicative of somebody that's old. Um, they are hiding him in a lot of opportunities that he he could have to press his agenda. They don't want to haul him out because they're afraid of what he's, you know, they're afraid of what it's going to look like. And that shows. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, this is all true, right? Unfair, but indicative of a real problem. And now everybody's like, well, it's too, you know, even if he dropped out tomorrow, it's too late to get on the ballot in most states. I mean, maybe I was looking at the calendar just now. Maybe eight or nine states, somebody else could still get on the ballot to challenge him, but it's too late to accrue a majority by the convention. And so if we decide he's not the guy or he decides he's not the guy, that means we got to have like a like an old school Democratic National Convention where the decision gets made by actually Biden's delegates at the convention uh, who can, according to the Democratic Party's rules, and I'd be happy to go on a rip about this, according to the party's rules, they can do whatever they want anyway. But especially if Biden is, is, has dropped out, they're completely released of any obligation they would have. So that would be fun from a political science perspective, <laughs> but not ideal from like a preparation standpoint to have a brand new candidate at this stage of the race. But I'm very much on record as I don't care what I don't care if it's in August. I would still rather replace Biden as the nominee. I don't care. You wake up like wake up Gretchen Whitmer at like 7 a.m. on August 20th and be like, you're on. <laughs> You're on. No, no campaign, yeah. no infrastructure, no stuff. I would still prefer it to Joe Biden. Uh, that was a great ref in so many ways and so many responses I could uh, offer up. And then it would take us down different paths of discussion. But I wholeheartedly endorse the open convention. Yes, please. <laughs> Let's. Uh, I've already uh, announced I am not going to the convention. I'm boycotting it, even though it's in Chicago. I've made plans with my family to be out of town. Uh, I think it's, I just, I wish it wasn't in Chicago. Let's just put it that way for many, many reasons, but an open convention, I might have to tune in for that. Uh, and okay. So here's my ultimate point. Um, I do not believe really any of this matters. I, you're absolutely correct with what you said that he sounds old. It's one thing to be old. It's another thing to sound old. Uh, Ronald Reagan was old and he was heading down the path of Alzheimer's, uh, David, when he was elected with one of the in one of the largest uh, margins uh, in history. I want to I was going to say the largest, but I can't recall. I think FDR may have uh, bettered him or maybe Nixon in 72. I can't remember, actually. Um, point doesn't matter. It was a huge landslide. He annihilated Walter Mondale. So that tells me a couple things. Number one, uh, s being senile and sounding senile could be overrated. And I say this as a guy who's lived in Chicago for me since 1981, David. This is before you got here. We elected a mayor year after year, election after election, named Richard M. Daly, who, if you had him talk on any subject, I, I challenge you to say what his point is. What he's, but the voters loved him. Uh, so, in terms of uh, Biden, yes, he sounds very old. Yes, I get nervous. Like, is he going to get to where he wants to go when he starts this sentence, or is he going to just fall into a pothole, a mental pothole? 
Uh, that said, he is not Donald Trump. And I've long believed that the only issue in the 2024 election, a presidential election, is Donald Trump. And my advice, if the Democrats are going to stick with Joe Biden as their nominee, is to essentially continue the <laughs> what they have been doing. Don't go anywhere. Don't leave the White House. Hey, work for Nixon. I didn't hear any Republicans complaining in 72 with the Rose Garden strategy. Don't engage in a debate. Don't do debates with Trump. Uh, and for goodness sakes, don't deviate from a script. Uh, and that may be your best shot at being elected because remember, you're up against Donald Trump. Uh, and furthermore, I believe, let's say they duck that um, suggestion. I don't think you need a ramp up. If let's say uh, Gavin Newsom or Whitmer uh, or J.B. Pritzker is the nominee, uh, I can name a bunch of other Democrats who clearly want to be president. I think they have the same advantage that Biden does. They're not Trump. And it only takes like three months <laughs> to hammer that point. I am not Trump. Uh, so essentially, this is a different kind of election than ever before. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think the basic strategy here is unchanged, right? Regardless of who the nominee is, it's um, it's about Donald Trump, it's about abortion, it's about democracy. Um, you make the election about issues where Democrats have a significant advantage, and then you kind of press the case on some of the good things that have happened in the last few years. Um, try to come up with some kind of second term agenda. I challenge you to go to Joe Biden's website right now and find anything about what he wants to do with the second term. It's just a giant mystery. Um, and maybe he just doesn't want to think that far in advance because he's assuming he'll be dead. But um, but that's the <laughs> that's the reality. Um, so, sure. I mean, yeah, it's got to be about Trump. I, I think the problem here is that it is increasingly becoming about Joe Biden. Right. So the, 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 the damage from this report, um, it's not that Biden can't go out in public and and sound coherent enough to dispel some of these fears. Um, it's that the more that the that the media focus and the public focus is on Joe Biden's age and mental fitness. That's just a lose-lose situation for him. Um, you could imagine a scenario where he's, uh, you know, where there's debates coming up and the media has set this incredibly low bar for him and then he clears it um, being, could be beneficial for him. But I got to tell you, the thought of watching Joe Biden in a two hour, three hour debate just makes me want to like, you know, wash <laughs> a bottle of Adaman with a bottle of whiskey. You know what I mean? So it's like, I can't do it. I, I can't. I can't sit there with my hands on the on the, the rails of my kid's crib and just be like, "Please, God, please don't let him say anything weird." No. Um, <laughs> like it's just, yeah. um, it's it's scary. Yeah. And you know, if he if he doesn't drop out, it's it's hard. You know, technically, according to the rules, his delegates could rebel. But you know, people's delegates are are generally hardcore supporters, so it's that'd be a really heavy lift. Um, and so it's like we're stuck with him unless he comes to his senses or dies. Um, and um, yeah, it just, we're just from bad to worse here, man. I, it's just like, we keep waiting for the polls to snap back for, for people to just assess the situation objectively and be like, well, we can't, I mean, <laughs> oh man, no, Trump, no way. Um, I think it's really telling that when you take head to head polls of like Nikki Haley versus Joe Biden, it's like, I mean, Nikki Haley looks like she would win 32 states and just and just trounce us. Um, maybe that would change if she had a more realistic chance at the nomination. But I, I think the general political position of Joe Biden 
is bad. It seems like the takeaway here is that Biden and Trump could only beat each other. <laughs> right? And yet we've read that's that's where we're headed. Oh my God. Like what nobody a- on earth would beat either of these two knuckleheads. And yet oh they're the candidates, you know, it's like oh. destiny. Lord, what a, that's, that is so true. Biden and Trump can only beat each other. Uh, and, uh, yeah, no, it, in the sort of the, the general uh, persona of Joe Biden is lends itself to the notion of senility far more than the, like, the batshit crazy uh, weirdness of Trump. <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, the difference is Biden seems frail and Trump doesn't. You know, yeah. Trump looks like he's still sucking down 25 hamburgers a day. And uh, he's got that, <laughs> that him and vigor, even if he makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, which he doesn't, he looks, he just doesn't look the part of a senile person. Whereas Joe Biden really does kind of like, he just, just him standing up at a podium. Yeah. It's like, does he see us? <laughs> you know, does he not see us? I don't really know. Look, I don't care if he had like, you know what I mean? I don't care if Joe Biden was like nonverbal and didn't recognize his own kids. I would still I would still vote for him over Donald Trump. Like it doesn't make it doesn't make one like a difference to me. Yes. Um, but um, that's not how voters work. And the perception that he's too old has taken hold. And I just don't know. I just don't know that you can. I don't know that there's much that can be done about that. I think you're right. Um, they just they have to conduct the campaign in a way that showcases his few remaining strengths, um, which are that he's not Donald Trump and he's vaguely alive um, and, uh, and a Democrat and not one of these MAGA weirdos. Uh, You got to keep the focus on Trump. You got to keep the focus on all the like complete zealots and extremists and, uh, and and loopy people that Trump is, are in Trump's orbit and what he wants to do with the second term. It's just Trump, Trump, Trump. And you hope it works because it's, uh, you know, I watched that press conference last night and I tell you, like, brutal. he just doesn't get it, man. I mean, he's like, the reporter was like, why you, you know, like, why can't somebody else do this? And he's like, cause I'm the most qualified person to finish what I started. And it's like, Oh my God. It's just, you, get out of your bubble, man. You know, like yeah. read the polls, get out of the way, you know, <laughs> but he won't do it. So no. I don't know. I, uh, like I said, oh, I, and I, you know, I had, we'll, we'll, we'll move to our second topic in a little bit, which I really want to talk to you about the essay you wrote. Uh, I think it was for Newsweek. Um, maybe it's like, now I can't remember the publication. Oh, I'm, I'm Biden-esque. Uh, but <laughs> there's that, there's that one mistake. Uh, I can't remember which publication that you wrote the, the article about stadiums. And anyway, um, so, there was a gangster. Follow me on about the same. When I when I read uh, the news article about uh, Robert, what Robert Hirsch said about Biden and uh, how Biden responded to questions uh, it, it, when he was being interrogated by her about the the classified documents, which again I will repeat, it's absolutely absurd that they're equating what Biden did to what Trump did, and this gets to the heart of your arguments for years about Democrats the way they enter the arena and their incompetence uh, when they head into the, a, a political arena to fight the Republicans. This only underscores it in my mind. Um, but I just thought of uh, this, there was this um, 
gangster in, in New York. His nickname was The Chin. I'm not making this up, David. This was years ago. I don't know if you were an adult when this went down. Uh, and I think uh, uh, Gigante, I think his name was, Vincent Gigante. I'm doing this from memory. Hey, well, this is a Biden-like feat. Uh, and um, so his thing was he would be wandering around Greenwich Village. I'm not making this up. In his pajamas, mumbling to himself. Uh, and like he had lost his mind. And he later confessed that this was a guy's he don't because he wanted to avoid federal prosecution for, I don't know what, murdering, ordering murders, some kind of, he was a really bad gangster, New York City gangsters back in the 80s and stuff. And gangsters were gangsters. And um, so I was thinking of Biden. I was thinking of him when I saw Biden. I'm like, oh, yeah, he was just acting like the chin, like I don't know what's going on. When my when did my son? Die? I don't know, you know, because he wanted to avoid prosecution. Uh, and then that movie, which you probably saw, because it's in your life, in sort of your generation, the Edward Norton movie. I don't know if you ever saw it called Primal Fear. Um, I don't know if you ever saw that one where uh, with Richard Gere and Edward Norton plays the kid who's pretending he's one thing and he's actually the other and he reveals it at the very end he's going to get away with murder so i don't know that's kind of what i was thinking biden was up to when he was uh being interrogated by her in which case it shows that his brain is nimble the irony of it is that it shows if, if you buy my theory which he was playing dumb because he wanted to avoid saying anything that could be used against him which by the way kind of robert her I don't know if you saw, like, read between the lines was saying Biden was doing. Biden was avoiding directly answering any question so that his lawyers, if he was indicted, could use that as a defense. And now, so her basically said, you go play that game with me? I'm going to mess you up. And he sort of comied him. You know, remember how James Comey did that in the letter about Hillary? And so to me, that's that's my read of what went down. Like, Biden actually was trying to be slick, which is the opposite of senility. Do you follow what I'm saying? Not that that's going to change any voters. Mind. Can you imagine if Biden goes to the kid? I'm not really feeble and senile. What I was doing, what I was, I was, I was doing my imitation of the chin. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's not really a great defense that'll win over swing voters in suburban Tucson. But um, that's my read of it. Uh, your thoughts. That's an interesting theory. I mean, it's a good it's a good legal strategy, right, for exoneration from the the potential crime of mishandling classified documents. But I do I wonder about the political side of it, right? It's like so you get yourself out of legal hot water, but now he's in political hot water. So I wonder if you would have reversed it and he had gone in there into that interview and just like, you know, like hammered out the details and just, you know, like maybe it would actually be better for Biden to have gotten indicted about this, right? Um, but, and then have not people not be speculating that he's too ancient to be the president. Um, if instead he had come off in these documents as like, you know, Robert Hur had been like this, like slick, you know, cunning snake oil salesman, you know, just was always operating several steps ahead of us. Um, you know, like we just do this indictment, but it's like, okay, fine. Now they're both indicted. Good times. Um, and, but, but we weren't all sitting here talking about like whether he can remember what he had for dinner last night. Um, and uh, I don't know, Ben, I just, you know, 
I just like I'm gonna close my computer and just like go watch a speech by Gretchen Whitmer and just like dream about what what, <laughs> what we could have with like a coherent yeah. presidential candidate under yeah. the age of seventy. I swear to God, Ben. 2028, if there is a single plausible candidate over the age of 65, I'm going to have a stroke. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I want this to be the young person's primary in 28, assuming we still have a yes. democracy. So that's, that's, that's that point is, uh, we're laughing, but that point is very valid, assuming we still have a democracy. By the way, I'll move on to the other thing, but um, there was a funny bit. There's a, a young comic, uh, Brooks Allison is his name, and he is, uh, got a job writing uh, for Jimmy Fallon. I think this guy's hilarious. And they, every now and then uh, he does a bit with Jimmy Fallon. And it's by far, in my humble opinion, the funniest thing that Jimmy Fallon puts out are his bits with Brooks Allison. So he did this interview on the street of New York City uh, where he was interviewing just random people on the street. And it was sort of like a take on what Jay Leno used to do. So Jay Leno would do interviews with random people on the street to prove how little Americans know about the news. And it would be some clueless uh, person on the street who wouldn't know. I don't, they wouldn't be able to recognize OJ Simpson or something like that, or wouldn't, you know, they, oh, Americans are so stupid. Ha ha ha. But what Brooks Allison did was he sh had pictures of Dean Phillips. You mentioned, this is what maybe, and Marianne Williamson, and he showed them the passerbys and they, they knew who the, they were. So, oh, that's Dean Phillips. He's from Minnesota. He's a, and I just, I, I thought it was really funny uh, because it's an indication. By, the joke was, when, it was like a joke within a joke. It was making a joke about how insane our system is where Joe Biden, these complete nobodies are running the only alternative the Democrats are coming up to, a guy who has senile. That was the joke. And then the joke was like, these people actually knew were so informed. They were like David Ferris's on the street. Can you imagine if, if the guy actually came up to you and you would go, oh, yeah, that's Dean Phillips and he's from Minnesota. You would know, you know, because you're a junkie. You study this stuff. It's your expertise. Anyway, I'm going to tangent. Uh, all right. Let's get to um, uh, uh, at the risk of being uh, Joe Biden. Let me at least get the publication right. I'm going to go with Newsweek. And uh, uh, am I right about this? Uh, it's this. It's this. It was in Slate. This was in, in Slate. Yeah. Damn. Okay. That's okay. So that's okay. Bad. Well-meaning okay. bender. Well-meaning podcaster. You know. <laughs> Here, lunch will be at noon. Okay, Ben, and you're having oatmeal. Um, all right. So this. Oh man, I'm, uh, this. The, what you wrote about uh, links to conversations that I have probably on at least a weekly basis with various guests on the local level uh, as we discuss the ongoing shenanigans in the city of Chicago uh, where both the Chicago White Sox, the baseball team, and the Chicago Bears, the football team, uh, are seeking public funding. They won't say exactly how, what kind of public funding, a TIF, property taxes, or a hotel motel taxes. They haven't really indicated. They haven't indicated at all. But they clearly want public funding. Uh, for a new stadium for the Bears and uh, a new stadium for the White Sox. Complete jokes. Uh, you took it to uh, the national level and you analyze what's going on in Washington, for instance, and in Wisconsin. And here's a paragraph that I would love to read to you, reading you to you, and then you just take it away on a riff. <clears throat> Public opinion is complicated, and there may be a sports version of Fino's Paradox. The political science finding that people generally like their own representative while disapproving of the job Congress is doing. Many people might find the idea of subsidizing playgrounds for billionaires and their hired athletes to be repugnant, but also love, for example, their Milwaukee Brewers, 
Wisconsin's famously tight-fisted GOP-dominated state legislator greenlit more than half a billion dollars in upgrades for this team stadium last year after the Brewers' ownership threatened to move. The bill was signed enthusiastically by Democratic Governor Tony Evers. Wow. Meaning that there's bipartisan consensus in favor of Milwaukee, one of the smallest markets in pro sports. In other words, one of the few things that Republicans and Democrats agree on these days is that it's a good idea to give public dollars to fabulously wealthy people who don't need the money because they have more than enough money to build their own stadium on their own. This is what passes for bipartisanship in America. Uh, You can't get an immigration bill through Congress, David. You're barely lucky to pass a budget from uh, like every three months you have to re-op. Isn't it something like that every four months? Uh, But give money to rich people for baseball parks? Sure. It's one thing we agree on. Uh, This is a form of insanity, and I'd love for you to take a deeper dive. So the floor is yours. Sure. I mean, what do American politicians love more than um, starving schools and teachers uh, of their funds while giving them to billionaires? I mean, this is a story that that goes back decades um, of the, you know, then millionaire, now billionaire sports owners extorting cities, playing them off against one another um, to extract concessions from them so that they can get richer. Um, it's like, it is, I mean, speaking of gangsters, you know, um, <laughs> uh, it's like, they're like, okay, well, if you don't give us what we want, we're going to go to Arlington Heights. Like, if you don't give us what we want, we're going to go somewhere else. Like, so what's happening now is in, uh, in Washington, DC, the, uh, owner of the Washington wizards, which is apparently a basketball team, I guess the original headline on this article was let the wizards disappear themselves. Um, so the the Washington Wizards, one of the worst franchises in professional sports, if I under, understand it correctly, and the Washington Capitals, which is a hockey team, um, you know, hockey, like we call the four majors, we call them the four major North American sports, okay, but it's really like three plus one. It's like there's three major sports and then there's hockey, um, which is pretty niche in terms of the kinds of people that like hockey. I mean, God bless it. If you're a hockey fan, I don't, you know, I don't care. Um, but they, uh, they threatened to move to just across the, the river to, into Virginia, into Alexandria, where actually my, my wife's family is from. Um, and just set off this firestorm. People were like, oh my God, you know, DC's, it's already down. And they're going to kick them while they're down. Like, what will happen if they lose the Caps and the Wizards? And it's like, the answer is nothing. If you just read like one article in economics, the answer is nothing, right? The answer is that like every dollar that you spend subsidizing pro sports is a dollar that can't be spent somewhere else. And it generates net zero revenue for the city. Net zero. Like not a single conceivable benefit in the long run for doing this. You have a short-term boom in the construction sector as, 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 the, uh, as the thing gets built. <clears throat> you have low-wage seasonal work um, when, the, when the games are in session. You know, a, you know, a very, very small number of higher-paying jobs um, for the teams themselves. But like ultimately... At best, like at the very best case scenario, this is a wash for the city. Um, And uh, it's really hard to justify from a budgeting standpoint why you would ever make the decision to do this. And immediately, like the mayor of D.C. and the D.C. City Council was like, oh, well, okay, well, we'll we'll give you lots of upgrades to the facilities. You know, we'll we'll spend half a billion dollars um, renovating the Capital One Arena in that part of D.C. And so the, the piece was inspired just by like my frustration that D.C. is playing along with this. You know, like in my mind, it's like DC's got plenty of problems to deal with. 
the Caps and the Wizards are not don't even make like the top twenty five, my humble opinion. Um, and they should have just told Virginia to go, you know, go stick it where the sun don't shine. You know, like you want the Wizards and the Caps, God bless. You know, that's like addition by subtraction. Bye, guys. Um, and it's just you know they they played along, and um, there's it's been twenty twenty six years ago. Uh, a couple of economists published a book, Andrew Zimbalist and, and Roger Knoll, uh, called Sports, Jobs, and Taxes. And it's like the, you know, it was like the, it was like the landmark book in this field. It inspired college professors to teach classes on, uh, you know, like sports and politics, basically using this as a textbook. Um, and it looked, it was a national comparison uh, study of the historical investments that cities uh, and states had made in their sports teams and whether they paid any economic dividends. Right? And their conclusions were very stark. It was like, no. Right. And there has been no meaningful research in the interim by anybody credible um, that these that these plans bring economic benefits. Um, it's more that the, the, the billionaire owners prey on people's sense of um, inferiority and, and like nervousness about like, oh, my God, if the brewers leave, are we even a place anymore? You know, like, will anybody ever come to Milwaukee ever again? Um and it's just, you know, ask the fastest growing metro areas in the country, whether they care, whether they have major sports like Fresno and like Provo, Utah. And it's like the places that are growing in the fastest don't have sports teams. Um, and so having a sports team has nothing to do with anything. You know, like if you're if you're like, oh, gee, I don't know where to live, but they better have a NHL team or I'm not going there. You know, it's like if, and if for D.C., it's like. I can't think of a city on earth that is less dependent on sports for tourism revenue than Washington, DC, right? Like this is the capital of the most powerful empire in the history of the planet. You don't need a hockey team to get people to come to DC. Right? Like they're going to come anyway. It's the seat of government of the United States of America. Um, and they really should have told them to stuff it. So all of which is relevant because the white Sox are about to do this to us. Um, and I, you, you can talk about the bears. I don't know that much about it, but, um, but the, you know, the white Sox want to build this stadium in the South loop. Um, or they're talking about it and, you know, for sure they're going to come with their cup out, you know, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf is like cheapest man on earth. Right. So he's going to come out and be like, you know, if you don't pay up Chicago, we're going to move to, I don't know where, you know, um, Mexico city or something, I, you know, like Nashville. Yeah. We're going to move to Nashville, move the White Sox to Nashville. And it's like, Hey, you know, with all due respect to, to everybody in White Sox land, we'll live, you know, the city of Chicago will live. They'll be disappointed White Sox fans. And I feel sorry for them. I come from a former two baseball team town that became a one baseball team town. Let me tell you, we're fine. You know, Philadelphia used to have the athletics and the Phillies, the athletics left. Philadelphia did not collapse. Still there folks. You can go, you can eat food there, go to a Phillies game. Everything's gonna be fine. Um, the point is like, I would love, I mean, I work like a mile from that potential site. I would love for there to be a baseball stadium there. I would be super duper excited. Um, and if they can do it without wasting taxpayer money on it, God bless, do it up. Uh, if the city wants to make investments and maybe like infrastructure there or something, that's fine. I think people would be okay with that. But, but don't go giving them giant property tax breaks and and different kinds of incentives or, you know, putting a, a, a one penny tax on every transaction in Chicago for a thousand years. It's like people don't want any part of that, and if they do, they shouldn't. Well, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Uh, so, all right, we'll, we'll leave the uh, the general and get to the specific. Um, what you said is really uh, illustrative of how the game is played. Um, so it's right now what the the backers of this deal are are doing, the Sox deal, put the Bears to the side, are doing, 
uh, is selling the public on this concept. Uh, and the concept is a gorgeous, a, a huge chunk of undeveloped land will be turned into the Garden of Eden. That's what we're being told. That's what um, uh, the, the people behind this deal are getting their uh, allies in the press to write. They're basically writing their press releases verbatim. Okay. Uh, so then you get in the ad issue of how, what, how are you going to subsidize this? And that's the art. Uh, I've watched this for many years in Chicago, David, the art, and this is a classic Chicago ruse, the art of concealing a subsidy uh, as a larger public good. So like you just said it yourself, oh, if you're paying for the infrastructure of an undeveloped land, uh, I can accept that. And that's what they're banking on. So they will artfully <laughs> put together a package uh, in which they're convincing the voters that in reality, they're taking undeveloped land and they're putting it to a better, higher use, and it will be a big payoff for you. So this is all about uh, developing Chicago. And they leave undone the notion that it's really being designed to benefit a handful of people. And that if you want to use public dollars to redevelop economic uh, blighted communities in Chicago or underdeveloped communities in Chicago, we have an entire city filled with them, which will be ignored for years and years and have been ignored for years and years. I would argue they've been intentionally ignored so that they will bottom out. Uh, but that's this is the game in Chicago. This is the Chicago spin on it. I've been watching it for years. They're really good at it. I mean, they're except not far from where you, uh, I think, where you live. Uh, no, you've moved. But uh, there's the Lincoln Yards facility, uh, Lincoln Yards deal, which is uh, on the just west of the Chicago River at around North Avenue or so. David, that is in the area of some of the most rapidly gentrifying uh, portions of Chicago, and yet they convinced the public that somehow or other they needed a subsidy for infrastructure. All you got to do is say infrastructure, David, and Chicagoans are like, give them the money. They need It's infrastructure, Ben. <laughs> and I, I, it's, so I think they'll get away with it. I actually believe they'll get away with it. Uh, which meant they'll have to figure out what to do with the ball yard they left behind in Bridgeport. So that'll be another subsidy. Uh, one subsidy, you know, gets another subsidy. And then the bears will be like, what about us? Um, here's the other thing I would love for you to close with this. You said something in your story, uh, in your essay that was really, I hadn't thought about. I think I'm doing this again, Joe Biden memory here. 62% the public and polls say they don't follow sports, something like that, 62%. And I'm aware, I'm aware there's a lot of people because I obsessively follow sports uh, to my detriment, David, I would say. Uh, and uh, it's not something I'm proud of. But I'm stunned by how little most of the people I encounter know about sports. It's just absolutely amazing. They couldn't tell you who that coach of the Bears is. So really, it's just like sports guys are a minority, why do they get such importance? Like if 62% aren't even following it and couldn't care less, couldn't tell you anything about the White Sox, why does it matter that the White Sox leave Chicago? I, help, help me with that one, David. 
Look, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, yeah, the, the data is pretty clear, right? A majority of, of the American people either don't watch sports at all or more commonly don't follow it very closely, you know? So a lot of people are aware, I, you know, like the average person is like, yeah, the Super Bowl is coming up, but like not probably that many people could tell you who's going to be playing in it, right? And not that many <laughs> people care. They'll go to the party, they'll eat the nachos. So it's a fun time. They'll watch some commercials and make fun of them. But they don't really care whether the Lions, sorry, it's not the Lions. <laughs> sorry, Detroit fans. So I think they lost in a very heartbreaking fashion. For, what is it, 49ers and the Chiefs or whatever? Yeah, they, nobody cares, right? Um, and it, it does happen that like sports telecasts are among the highly, most highly ranked and highly watched programs of the year. But that's, you're still talking about a distinct majority, minority of the American population. And, you know, baseball teams found that out the hard way last year. Because one of the regional sports networks that uh, that pays a lot of baseball teams, I think a dozen or so baseball teams, for the rights to televise their games went under. Um, because, I mean, functionally, not enough people are watching these telecasts to justify the amount of money that's been invested in them. And, the, and a lot of sports spending, player salaries, everything right now is being propped up by the reality that if you're a cable subscriber, you're, you're paying a carriage fee for ESPN and a carriage fee for whatever, Fox Sports even if you don't watch sports, right? There's like millions of people subsidizing pro sports who don't watch it. Right? And that, um, that grand bargain has come under a lot of scrutiny and it's sort of falling apart. Um, so yeah, most people don't watch sports. Most people on, on you know, this is this, you know, this, this White Sox of the team in the South side, right? Most people don't follow the White Sox, go to White Sox games or care about the White Sox. Right. But somehow, and this is my guess is how this is going to get done is that Reinsdorf is going to convince politicians on the South side that the White Sox are some intrinsic part of the city's identity and that losing them would be a terrible, terrible blow. It'll be like, man, you know, it's already distressed on the south side of Chicago. Boy, if we if we take the White Sox to, to Nashville, it's just, I just don't know how the south side will ever recover. The other thing that really gets my goat about this, let me tell you, and I'll stop. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the White Sox stadium, okay? Not one thing. There's a nice place to watch a baseball game. It's actually one of my favorite parks in the country, and I've been to over 20 baseball stadiums. Um and the White Sox, it's like, it's easy to get to, all right? There's plenty of parking, um, It's in, but it's still in a neighborhood, right? So you can do things afterwards. Um, it's a spacious park. Um, you know, my experience generally benefits from the fact there's not usually that, that many people at a White Sox game <laughs> as opposed to a Cubs game. But there's nothing wrong with the facility, right? It's, it's, it's not that old. It's from like 89, right? 88. Um, yeah, and it's like, they're extorting us for new stadiums like 15, 20 years after the things are built. It's like, get real, man. The Red Sox and the Cubs still play in like 110-year-old facilities. Why do you need a new one 30 years after the one was built? Like, fix it up. Fine. Use your own billionaire money to fix up the stadium yourself. And leave us alone. Um, and it's like, you can see, and it's the fact that we're even talking about this. It's just like such a it's such a public relations coup for Jerry Reinsdorf, right? Because he was like, Oh, I don't know, like the release is up in six years, so we'll just have to see. And then magically some renderings get released of a stadium in the South Loop. It's all a play that's being run on the city of Chicago, right? Um, and uh, I don't know, I guess I'm holding out some vague hope that there's enough like actual progressives in the city council at this point to, to put a stop to this. But who knows, you know? Uh, no, I think our uh, progressive mayor, uh, Brand, uh, Brandon Johnson, uh, buys into the notion that it would be good for the city, or at least good for him, uh, to put this deal together. Uh, and uh, so I'll just uh, push back on one minor thing and then we'll close it down. Uh, 
I, uh, yes, Reinsdorf would be, and the White Sox would be a beneficiary uh, if they signed on to this deal. But my uh, reading of it is that this was actually being pushed by the developer of the site where the, uh, the project would go, who is sitting again on this huge chunk of undeveloped land uh, that um, he couldn't develop. He, he just, the, I mean, the, the economy has changed, as you know, drastically since COVID. Uh, and so he um, was really struggling to get his development deal uh, through. And all of a sudden, the light went on. He goes, I know. I'll link it to the White Sox. And the White Sox were like, sure. It's just like, oh, yeah, okay. And so now, again, the, the public in Chicago is not thinking about that the fact that there's that we're really subsidizing this development deal what they're thinking about is, yeah, what a great stadium, and it'd be on the river. And it's just so. unbelievable, Ben, because you know, like <laughs> the Brewers guy is worth seven hundred million dollars. Like he could swipe a credit card and build a new stadium by himself, right? Yeah. Like why? Do, I just it's just mind boggling. Don't do it, I, Chicago. Don't do it. All right, we'll close with that. Great advice, uh, <laughs> David Ferris. Don't do it, Chicago. You know what? You'll figure out a way to develop, or maybe turn it into a park. Whoa, there's a radical idea. It's a huge chunk of land on the river. Whoa, let's blow my mind. A park. Maybe the running track. We need running tracks in the city, you know, maybe for high school kids. Right. Low, invest in the citizens of Chicago as opposed to the plutocrats of Chicago. Wow. That'll be All the right, day, huh? David. <laughs> Thanks for uh, putting up with us. We had a few technical issues at the start, but it all worked out well. It was a great uh, conversation. And, uh, yes, I urge every civic leader in Chicago to listen to David Ferris uh, on the White Sox deal. And maybe sometime we'll we'll take the deep dive in the Bears. That'll really uh, drive you crazy when you hear about that one. (laughs) Anyway, thank you very much, David. Thanks for uh, having me on the show, Ben. It's always a pleasure. See you next time. Yes, see you next time in two weeks. David Ferris will return. Uh, That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 